Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, I'm Elise Lunen, the Chief Content Officer here at Goop. This guest is really special. Her name is Lindsay Toloski. Before I introduce her, I want to say a quick thanks to our friends at Kettle One Botanical who are bringing you today's episode. I grew up in Montana, which I know I talk about a lot. And as much as I love my Montana childhood and living in LA now, I do miss some things from when I lived on the East Coast, particularly the summer vibe. I don't know if you've heard, but we don't really have seasons in Los Angeles. This summer, I'll be spending some time back east and hanging at Goop's pop-up shop in Sag Harbor. It's special for a few reasons. One is that it's outfitted with a custom Chris Earl bar cart and stocked with Kettle One Botanical. We'll be hosting a few events there throughout the summer and serving some pretty goopy cocktails. Kettle One Botanical, for the uninitiated, is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. I'd love to share a cocktail with you in Sag Harbor, but either way, you can order your own Kettle One Botanical at drizzly.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Lindsay Toloski is the co-founder and executive director of the Immigrant Defenders Law Center, an organization that's worked tirelessly to represent the most marginalized immigrants who need our support. She's one of the most inspiring women I've ever had the pleasure of meeting, and I had the chance to interview her at an event Goop hosted a few months ago for an amazing organization called This Is About Humanity. Everyone in the room cried the entire time. 
So if you have any lone Kleenex floating around in your bags, your cars, you might want them now. Today, she's joining me to tell us about what she's gone through in efforts to help with the family separation policy and the ways in which we can all help. So when we think about, you know, what does justice look like? What's our long-term vision? To me, justice is when everybody has a fighting chance. Let's get into my chat with Lindsay. Thank you for being here. I know for the invitation. You have more valuable places to be, so I appreciate the time. And as I mentioned in the intro, we met a couple of months now at a Goop event where I interviewed you. And there was not a dr- I mean, it was really hard, but powerful conversation. So thank you for leading us through that. Yeah, thank you for, for inviting me and giving me the, the space to talk about some of the stuff that I've seen and in the work that I do. I know in Southern California, we're obviously particularly close to the border, but this is a, a story and an ongoing crisis that is gripping this country, and it doesn't seem to be abating. Can you sort of, yeah. when did this start, and can you sort of set the stage in terms of exactly what's going on in these detention centers and, and what's happening to these families and these children? Yeah, so, you know, the the Central American refugee crisis really has its origins decades ago. We did see an abatement of people coming to seek asylum for, for several years after, you know, the amnesty and other things that happened in the 80s. But you know, since about 2013, we've seen a huge influx of refugees from Central America. In 2014, a lot of people remember we saw the surge of children who came. And at that time, the government was really overwhelmed. And we saw, you know, some of the same things that we're seeing now with kids in large camps and kids being held in conditions that were not good. But what we're seeing now is just a different level. And because of the current administration's decisions to try to make the conditions in which they're holding people a deterrent for people to come in the future, which is really, you know, if we just are blunt about it, is intentional cruelty Mm -hmm. to people who are coming here to try and save their own lives. Because of that, you know, the situation has just become really dire, particularly at the border. Yeah. And I think, too, it's, you know, I know it's it's so hard for me to understand the other point of view on immigration simply because I love my home. I would hate to have to flee it. I can't imagine taking my children and setting out with a handful of belongings on a treacherous, unknown journey, hoping that there's some sort of warm hug on the other side. Like, it is so incredible to me that people think that this is something people would choose and that they haven't been forced into it, you know, like that horribly graphic but important image of the father and his daughter, you know, who swam across the Rio Grande and drowned. Sorry. (laughs) No, and it's, I think that what we see is this idea that if people know that they're going to be held in horrible conditions, if they know that their children 
you know, unfortunately might drown in the Rio Grande, that they will make a different decision. And I think the fact that we have seen, you know, over the last few months, a surge in people coming, despite all of this being front page news in Central America as well, what's happening to their countrymen when they arrive, you know, at our border, tells you a lot more about what's pushing them out of their countries than it tells you about what's happening here. Yeah. Because there is no way in that horrific story, you know, the mom was standing on the other side of the shore. She witnessed that happen. No mother would send their child into what was a extremely tragic situation like that, unless they thought that was the only way to save their lives. And I think Oscar is his name and his daughter, it really brings up a bigger issue, which is the fact that they were stuck in Mexico for months, waiting for the opportunity for the United States to process them for asylum. And right now we have an office in San Diego that's in Tijuana, you know, every single week we're down there. And there are thousands of people who either have are waiting for even the opportunity to present for asylum at the port of entry, or they've presented and they've been sent back across the border into really dangerous and, you know, frankly, squalid conditions to wait in a a very dangerous city. So in that particular case, that family had been at the border waiting for their turn to present for months. Mm -hmm. And it was a dangerous situation. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, we all know the outcome But that was one story that gained national and international attention because there was a reporter there who took that photo. But we know of many, many other families that are facing similarly these decisions that, you know, no mom, no dad, no family should ever have to face. And it's really an intentional effort by the administration to make seeking asylum so hard and so impossible that people will stop doing it with no regard for you know the really horrific conditions that they're fleeing. Totally. I was in London when that happened, and it's interesting because there that photo actually ran and on the front page, and it said, a shame on America. You know, I think mm-hmm. the rest of the world is holding us uh, rightly in a lot of judgment right now in terms of the lack of humanity that we're showing, particularly for a country built by immigrants. So what's happening in the detention centers? What's happening in the camps? And then let's talk about your work and the children that are expected to show up in court alone. Yeah. So one of the things that we see right now is a lack of planning and a purposeful effort to create crisis. Mm. We know every year in April, May, and June that those are the years when most asylum seekers will come to our border. And we know that that is because of weather. That's not something that is unique to 2019. That's something that every year we see our numbers go up at that time. Instead of preparing for that, the government since January, when they instituted this policy of sending people back across the border to wait for their asylum cases to be heard in the United States, but from Mexico, all of the shelters in Tijuana and in Juarez outside of El Paso were full and the conditions are dire. And so what we've seen over the last two months 
our children and families who've been processed in, and there isn't even enough systems in place to process those families away from the border. And so they're being put in open-air camps. Many are being sent back across the border. And we know I have colleagues of mine who have firsthand experience hearing stories out in Juarez where families literally get to the end of the bridge in Mexico and are kidnapped after coming to the U.S. to seek asylum, being forced back into fear as part of those migrant persecution protocols, and literally being kidnapped as soon as they're sent across. Mm. You know, I've heard of friends who were in court and watched women wailing in court saying, I was sexually assaulted the last time you sent me back. Please don't send me back. Mm. And those, you know, women are sent back. I myself have represented, you know, a family where the family of four came to Tijuana to seek asylum in the United States. They presented the mom and the infant child, who was just a few months old, were paroled into the United States, meaning that they were allowed to come in while their case was heard. And the four-year-old boy and his father were sent back into Tijuana to wait. And I went to court with that little boy, and he was sick. He had been in a shelter without proper food. He actually was wearing a diaper because he was so ill that he couldn't even control his bowels. And in that case, we were able, by putting all of this information on the record in front of the judge, and, you know, it sounds crazy, but this is kind of, it's the wild, wild west at this point, and immigration law has become, you know, we're doing things that we never would have thought we would have to do, like inviting reporters into the courtroom when we have a case like this, because we figure that maybe, just maybe, the trial attorney for the government will be so ashamed that they won't do what we know they do in every other case. So in this case, we were able to get that father and his son paroled in because just it was on a Tuesday that we had court on the Sunday before this four-year-old boy, it's the same age as my own son, was held at knife point with his father in Tijuana. And, you know, the poor mom was helpless in the United States for what she could do. So... We're seeing these stories, and because of that crisis that has been created and because of the lack of resources for the now more than 18,000 people that have been sent back, we're seeing that the families that are processed through, before they can even decide which ones to force back, and the unaccompanied children who, thank goodness, they, under international law and under our own laws, can't send back into Mexico. Those kids are being, you know, bottlenecked, essentially, in these giant camps in El Paso. And when I say there's a lack of planning, I say that because not only did we know that there would be stress on the system because of the migrant persecution protocols in all of the families that are already there, but we knew that there would be a surge of unaccompanied children, especially right now, especially because we know what's going on in the Northern Triangle and Central America, and even newer than that, the situation politically in Nicaragua. Because we knew all of that, the government should have been prepared with proper facilities and also the ability to process these children in to get them out of Customs and Border Protection custody and into the custody of Health and Human Services. It's a very complicated system, but the thing to kind of keep in mind is that when a child is unaccompanied and first crosses the border, they initially will be met by Customs and Border Protection. Under our laws, Customs and Border Protection has 72 hours to transfer those children into the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. During those 72 hours, I always tell families who contact me, 
Let's get through these 72 hours, get them into the custody of, we call it ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, because those 72 hours are the most dangerous. Mm. And I tell them that because in 2014, you know, under the past administration, I helped to author a report about the dangerous conditions for children in Customs and Border Protection custody. This is when kids are held with other adults. I've seen kids be victims of verbal and sexual abuse by officers where they are held in conditions where there's medical neglect. And those conditions have gotten so much worse in the last year. And that's what we're seeing in Clint, Texas right now with the camps, mm. kids being held outside, not being given access to any services and being held well beyond the 72 hour statutory limit. We're seeing kids who are in the custody of those camps in Customs and Border Protection for weeks and weeks and weeks. And that's where we're seeing, you know, unfortunately, kids dying because the conditions are horrific for anyone, but never mind a child traveling alone. And again, it brings us back to where we were talking about a few minutes ago. People know how dangerous this is. Mm -hmm. They know how dangerous crossing that river is. They know how dangerous these camps will be. It tells you more about what they're coming from mm -hmm. than anything else. Because who would send their child on this dangerous journey into the hands of a government that has open disdain and cruelty towards them? Yeah. Unless they thought their life was at risk. Totally. So as these kids move through these detention centers, then when do you guys get to step in and how many lawyers are working at the border for these children? So immigrant defenders in particular, we have an office in San Diego. And so one of the things that we do in partnership with a lot of other organizations, including Clinic, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, and Al Otro Lado, which is a Tijuana and San Diego-based organization, is we actually attempt to, for the kids who are in Tijuana waiting to present and who are at you know children's shelters there, we prepare them before they go and we try to track them. So what we do is we'll make sure that we're sometimes there and actually presenting them at the port of entry so that we can you know, know the moment they went into Customs and Border Protection custody and we can follow what happens during that entire period. And that's really important because other Otherwise, when they go into Customs and Border Protection custody, they're going into a black hole. Yeah. There's no you know, statutory right to representation for anyone in the custody of Customs and Border Protection. And that should really scare us all, considering the Facebook groups that we saw come out this week where they were using, you know, racist tropes to discuss migrants, where they were, you know, insulting our elected leaders. So the fact that you know we are sending them into the custody of this government agency that really has gone rogue under mm -hmm. the current administration is frightening. Once they're, what we try to do is track those kids, submit paperwork so they know that they're represented, and during that period of time, we'll advocate for their release. For unaccompanied children, the ideal is that within 72 hours, they're transferred to Health and Human Services to ORR custody. And then they go to a, a network of shelters around the country. 
If they stay um, in the greater Los Angeles area, and I mean really greater, greater, because it's quite a big area, but if they're in this area, then Immigrant Defenders meets with every single child that's in custody. We meet with more than 1,300 a year who are in the custody of our local shelters, and we accompany them to court. We represent them once they're released from the shelters if they stay in Southern California. So... You know, once they get through Customs and Border Protection, the system is relatively more humane. We do have access to them. They do have someone who's there to fight for them. But there is that very dangerous period when they first cross the border. And isn't it not legally mandated that they have someone who they represent themselves, right? So absent you guys stepping in, a two-month-old might be expected to present in court alone. Yeah, and I've been in court and watched that happen and seen, you know, little kids who are so tiny, their feet don't even touch the floor and they are playing with the headphones that they're supposed to be putting on so that they can hear the interpreter. And when you walk into a courtroom, there's one in downtown Los Angeles where this happens every single day. Children are expected to sit there and represent themselves in a language that is not their first language, sometimes without an interpreter who can really understand the indigenous language well that they do speak. And in every single case, there is a highly trained, highly educated, licensed attorney from the government prosecuting them and trying to, you know, their stated goal is to deport this person from the United States. That's the the nature of the proceedings. And no one really, I've never met anyone who could really represent themselves. Even my clients who are very highly educated adults aren't equipped to, you know, try their own cases in immigration court. So it's a huge due process violation for people to not be afforded representation. In the criminal context, if someone's facing even one day in jail, they are afforded under you know, the Gideon versus Wainwright case, they are afforded counsel in court. But in immigration court, where if you lose your case, you could be sent back to your death. Mm-hmm. In the United States, we are not giving those people attorneys. And you know, children, of course, are the most egregious mm-hmm. of these cases. Because when you see a little kid sitting in court, confused, terrified. You know, I wouldn't even say scared, terrified. And traumatized. Traumatized. They've already been through, you know, unspeakable things in many cases. I can't tell you that, you know, almost every time I go to court, my clients, adults and kids, but particularly children, are shaking next to me. Mm. And that's when they have me there to represent them. You can only imagine, you know, how terrifying it is for small children who don't have anyone by their side. When you win them asylum, how how frequently does that happen? And then is it is there typically someone from their extended family who's there to take them, or do they go into the foster care system? What happens? So we have over 700 clients, so there's kind of a huge variety of um, children. Many, especially here in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, we have one of the largest Central American populations in the country. And we're actually, in 2017, we were the number one receiving site for unaccompanied children in the country. And that's because so many of their relatives were here. So in the vast majority of our cases, our clients have been released from custody and are living with extended family. So when we win asylum for them, usually they you know, have been living with extended family and are really integrated into our community at that point. 
For some children, they don't have anyone here, and they're in a federal government program called Long-Term Foster Care. It's funded through the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And for those kids, when they win asylum, they remain in a foster home, but they go into a program called Unaccompanied Refugee Minors, which is the same program that takes unaccompanied children from refugee camps in Thailand and in Africa and resettles them here. Although for the last two years, no children have been resettled through that program because the government has stopped accepting refugee arrivals through the Unaccompanied Refugee Minors program. So for most of our clients, if they win asylum, they you know, will remain local and they are in programs that support them or with family. If you have a lawyer with you in court, you're 1,100% more likely to win your case. Mm. That's a really stunning statistic. And I always tell people I didn't add an extra zero <laughs> on that <laughs> accidentally. It is 1,100%. There are certain courtrooms. There was an article I was reading earlier today about a courtroom where in the past two years, a judge in Georgia has never approved an asylum case. Wow. There's a courtroom in downtown LA where I have a particularly heartbreaking case. I've been fighting to get my client out of ICE imprisonment for almost two years. He's 18 years old. He's never even had one breath of air outside of an immigration prison since he turned 18. The judge in his case recently denied his asylum claim, even though he was shot in the stomach by gangs weeks before fleeing to come to the United States. In his case, the judge approves 7% of asylum cases that she hears in downtown Los Angeles. Jesus. So when we think about, you know, what does justice look like? What's our long-term vision? To me, justice is when everybody has a fighting chance. To have a fighting chance, you need a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And you need to be in a courtroom that is an actual independent arbiter of justice. You can't be in a place that's been politicized. And unfortunately, because the immigration courts are part of the Department of Justice, we've seen that the attorney general has had over the last two years, first under Sessions and now Barr, has really you know attempted to politicize the courts. And so unfortunately, what we're seeing now is it is much, much harder for people to gain asylum within our courts. So the the 18-year-old who was shot in the stomach, does he have any chance? There's no appeal. He is just sent home? So I actually met him when he was 17, and he had been mistaken for an adult. And someone told me that he was in a facility in Orange County that was all adults, and they said, I met this kid there. You've got to go down and see him. And I couldn't believe it. And so I went down and I asked to meet with him and he walked out and, you know, I'm pretty good at guessing ages. I could tell as soon as I saw him that he was not an adult. He was a child. Mm. He had just turned 17 years old. He was recovering from a bullet wound to the stomach. And he told me that his birth had never been registered in Guatemala. And so when when he had arrived, the Office of Refugee Resettlement had attempted to find out his true age, but they couldn't. And so because of that, they did a dental exam, which is something that happens pretty often. And the dental exam indicated that it was 80% likely that he was over 18. So they sent him to an adult ICE facility. Mm. In that adult ICE prison, he has now been for almost two years his case, he had already been removed by the immigration judge who, re- who removes 93% of people before we started representing him. We appealed the case. 
and we ended up going into federal court and we got his case reopened. And after the case was reopened, he was actually brought back to the Office of Refugee Resettlement only to be re-detained into ICE custody at 6 a.m. on his 18th birthday because they hadn't ruled on the motion to reopen. I was getting a little bit into the weeds, but this type of situation, what it, the ultimate thing is that, you know, a month ago we sat in a courtroom and when I say someone's shaking, my client in this case, Jose, was shaking so hard I had to put my hand on his hand at one point during the proceedings to calm him down. He knows if he goes back that he will face his death. Mm-hmm. So the stakes couldn't be higher. And the judge, after an hour and a half of hearing his testimony and of hearing our arguments, went into the back and 10 minutes later came out with a 45-minute oral decision that she read into the record, essentially deporting him back to his country. We did reserve appeal on that, which means that we will be bringing it to a higher court and we're considering other options, um, including going back to federal court to try and get him out of custody. But probably nearly every off- every lawyer in my office has worked on his case at some point. We filed, I mean, I have boxes and boxes and boxes in my office of filings that we've done. We've done dozens of motions in his case and he's still in custody and we still haven't won. We're not giving up. But, you know, I've given a little time to talk about his case because it illustrates that even with lawyers who are specialists in this area, who are pouring their all in, seeking asylum should not be this hard. Mm -mm. It shouldn't take a team of highly trained attorneys, you know, doing everything we can just to give him a chance. And unfortunately, because of the judge that he's in front of, him and 93% of people just have absolutely no chance. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to Airbnb. Dot com slash host. Let's take a quick break. There are a few things that define summer. For me, that's getting to the beach in Maine, eating outside, spending more time with my kids, watching fireflies, hiking, trying to slow down a bit reading books, and mixing in novels with my usual nonfiction stack for work, a lot of earthing or walking barefoot, maybe going on a Netflix binge, catching up with friends, traveling, and making summer cocktails. If you're looking for inspiration for your next summer party, not that you need an occasion, we have a lot of fun recipes on Goop made with fan favorite Kettle One Botanical. For starters, see the Botanical Breeze and Cucumber Mint Cooler, or just grab some fever tree soda and mix a botanical spritz. Kettle One Botanical is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. 
There are three Ketowan Botanical varietals, Cucumber and Mint, Grapefruit and Rose, and Peach and Orange Blossom. And they all make for really fresh tasting summer cocktails. You can order Ketowan Botanical on drizzly.com to try one out yourself. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Between this podcast, our live events, and the editorial stories, we get to team up with a lot of innovative companies that are also run by and for women. Like, for example, Sunrev. A while back, we interviewed Coral Chung and Wendy Wen, the co-founders of Sunrev, for our female founders column. And this is what I learned. Sunrev is a modern, direct-to-consumer luxury handbag line. They believe, like we do at Goop, that women are multifaceted and that our choices matter. Their bags are all handmade by artisans in Florence, Italy, and sourced from the finest materials. All of their styles are 100% Italian leather and made with high-quality micro-suede interiors. But speaking of choices that matter, my summer project, or really my forever project, is streamlining my closet and paring it down to the basics and essentials, the things I know I'll wear and love forever, or at least for a long time. So I appreciate the versatility of Sunrev's Maestra bag in particular, which is really like having four bags in one. The Maestra bag can be worn like a backpack, satchel, tote, or crossbody. It's the perfect size and shape to hold your laptop, and its built-in organization system has basically already done the Marie Kondoing for you, which at the end of the day really means you don't have to lose your keys in a bottomless abyss. You can order your own Sunrev bag at senreve.com, that's senrev.com, and you can use code GOOP to get 10% off your order for a limited time. Okay, break's over. Let's hear more from Lindsay Tolosky. So what do you guys need? Do you need lawyers? Do you need money? Like what, what's the solution beyond a, hopefully a more sympathetic administration, different judges, a replumbing of our <laughs> immigration system? All of the above. <laughs> No, so, so, you know, certainly donations to MDEF and other legal aid organizations helps. And what we do every single time we get enough money is we hire another lawyer. I founded the organization in 2015 with a really simple idea, which is that no immigrant should be forced to go to court alone. And so for us, you know, every single time we can expand to make sure that fewer people are forced to go into immigration court alone, we do. In, you know, in San Diego right now, we're in the process of hiring an additional two attorneys so that they can accompany those kids to the border. They can follow their cases. We can file, you know, litigation in federal court to challenge the conditions that these kids are being held in. You know, in many ways, lawyers are sort of the only option to assist because humanitarian aid doesn't work when people are in the custody of the government. What works is getting them a lawyer to get them the hell out of there. Yeah. So certainly, you know, legal aid organizations are playing a really important role. What about bearing witness? You know, I was talking Mm -hmm. to Shannon Watts and, you know, the Moms Demand Action red T-shirts, like showing up in force for gun sense laws. Like, is there an equivalent movement of moms that can show up in court? Yeah, so we actually have groups almost every week now that we are bringing small groups of people to just come with us and sit in the family dockets. And there's actually 
four times a week in Los Angeles, there are dockets that have 30 to 40 families, so adults traveling with children who are asylum seekers who are brought into a courtroom in the federal building in downtown. And in fact, they are in front of the same judge that I was talking about where only 7% of people gain asylum. And 99% of them, if they don't have a lawyer from immigrant defenders or from one of our partner organizations, are representing themselves. So we ask people to come down and sit through that docket. Because I often feel like if someone told me, hey, if you travel to this other country, it's possible that we're going to separate you from your kids and then you guys are going to have to go into a court by yourselves without representation and you know defend yourself from being expelled from the country, I would say, well, I'm not visiting there. Right. But it happens every single day, but it happens behind a curtain. And the government doesn't want us to know. You know, what we see coming out of the camps, that only happened because of lawyers that were able to get into those camps and write about the conditions there. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, reporters took aerial photos of them. I'm a big proponent of pulling back the curtain. So anyone can go into the court and Mm -hmm. witness proceedings? Absolutely. So in in downtown Los Angeles at 606 South Olive Street is the immigration court. It's open to the public. There's another court at 300 North Los Angeles. We are, you know, always happy if people want to know when we have cases so they can come in and observe. So for when people visit court, you can't take pictures inside the courtroom. And we certainly don't encourage people to put identifying information about the people that they see in court. But we definitely encourage people after they've visited to go outside the courtroom and make a Facebook Live or an Instagram Live video about what they saw and to describe it and to describe the the suffering that we see inside those courtrooms every day. I think for me, when I see those posts and I see them going viral, especially for people that have a lot of influence that have, you know, a lot more Twitter followers than I do, when I see them posting about what they saw and a lot of people reading that, as someone who for 10 years has been going into those courtrooms and witnessing that day in and day out, I'm so grateful because, you know, it's shining a spotlight on gross human rights violations that are happening in our own city. And it's so important. I mean, they've been likened to concentration camps. Do you think that that's fair or Japanese internment camps? I think it's fair. We have a group of people that are being targeted because of where they come from that are being held in inhumane conditions. Some of them are dying. Many of them are children. To me, you know, the moment we got into a sort of external debate publicly about whether or not we should call them concentration camps, that tells us enough. The fact that we could even debate whether they really are concentration camps or internment camps or what they're not are summer camps, which is how the Trump administration last year tried to describe them. So fucked up. Another great organization is Immigrant Families Together California. They have a whole network, mostly through Facebook, where they'll put out, you know, calls for, hey, we have a, a family of asylum seekers that are, you know, staying with a sponsor in Eagle Rock or in Silver Lake or Santa Monica, and they really need all of this stuff. And they'll put out Amazon wish lists for them, and it's a way to directly welcome someone to the United States. We also have a lot of our clients.
clients. We have over 700 children clients, as I mentioned. Many of them need help getting to court so people can give them rides and help them in that way. And that's a really direct way to show someone, I think, the values that many of us see missing in our larger immigration policies, which are you know, the values of welcoming someone as a new neighbor, seeing them as a human being and seeing their value to our community. Yeah. And, you know, this is about humanity being another good organization started by a fellow mom who was just indignant over what she was seeing and decided to do something, which seems to be how things get done. And particularly with This Is About Humanity, what they've done is really harness the resources of so many of our neighbors to come together and support so many different organizations in Southern California that are doing direct services. And there are so many, you know, small and big ways, both by attending events put on by them and others, to even, you know, hosting dinner parties in your home where you can ask folks who are working on this on the front lines to come in and talk to your neighbors about what's happening. Because, you know, what we saw in the family separation crisis was when that audio was released of those children wailing Mm -hmm. um, for their parents. And, you know, they sounded terrified. And when, when we heard that, and when the American public heard that, there was outrage. And we got in the streets. And we put a stop to that policy. It had to end because of what happened, because people said, we're not going to allow this. But, you know, there is compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. And I know sometimes when I tell people there's 18,000 people who've been sent back across the border, it's hard to picture. So following frontline activists and lawyers who are down there on Twitter and on Instagram and sharing their photos from the front lines is another way to really make sure that people are aware and that we're not becoming so numb to the cruelty that we're seeing that we fail to act when we need to. Yeah, and it's I know it's complicated because of the border, obviously, but you can't send things into Mexico. So organizations like This Is About Humanity have bank accounts in Tijuana. They can buy things in Tijuana, take them directly to shelters. Mm -hmm. And that's really important, too, not to flood our border cities with donations of goods because there's a huge strain on communities in Tijuana economically with this huge surge of people that are in their community. And so it's way better if you can donate money to organizations like Border Angels or This Is About Humanity that are actually going down and purchasing goods there um, because it supports the local economy that's being most impacted by the decisions of the U.S. government. Do you see any hope? Is this just going to continue until we have a new, more humane administration? Well, if I didn't see hope, I couldn't do what I do every day. So I do see hope. You know, we keep suing the administration and we keep winning. You know, through the Mizell litigation that happened around family separation, the ACLU won that case. And they were able to make sure that the government was forced by our federal courts to reunify many of those families. We have so much enthusiasm, I think, within the activist lawyer set for fighting back. In some ways, it's, you know, we're in for the fight of our lives, for our communities. But what I have seen is that our courts have stepped in and we have won a lot of cases. Things are taking a lot longer now because of the impact on our immigration court system, on families being in detention for longer, for children being held in custody for longer periods of time. All of those things are 
really giving us the opportunity to, you know, file more lawsuits, to um, slow things down so that the government can't just deport people as quickly as they want to. So our practice has changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. From, you know, just fighting case by case to fighting case by case, but also figuring out ways to put a stop to policies that are harmful to to all refugees. Yeah. So I see hope. I think, you know, I always tell people one of the things they can do is make sure they vote, make sure everybody votes, because the election in 2020 is really going to say a lot about who we are and what we care about. Yeah. I know you can't read the mind of this particular judge with a 7% track record. But what do you perceive is what what is incenting her to be so cruel? Is it a lack of humanity? Is it pressure? So I think all immigration judges right now are under tremendous pressure from the Attorney General to to deny cases to deport people as quickly as, proce- as possible, and I would argue to deny them due process and to violate the Constitution. That being said, there are judges who you can see pushing back in the ways that they can. There are some, unfortunately, who are leaving because they don't want to work in that way. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is a bigger, you know, sometimes I try and think of this as a pendulum and the pendulum is swinging so far in one direction that maybe it'll have to swing back in the other direction, even, you know, in a greater way. And so I hope that what we're seeing right now is the pendulum so far in one direction that maybe this will be the thing that really leads to actual reform. So not only to just immigration reform, you know, the big immigration reform we've all been waiting for, but also for an independent judiciary for the immigration courts to get them out of the Department of Justice and have them be an actual independent federal court so that the judges are judges who are not getting that kind of pressure. We shouldn't have any judges in the United States that are under political pressure Mm-mm. to do something, to make decisions about people's lives because of politics. But that being said, I think there are certain judges who, um, because of their own politics, are relishing this moment to do what they've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm I I think it's a lack of humanity would probably be a way to put it and you know in a feeling of xenophobia to, towards those who are coming to our country. I keep seeing that says if you've ever wondered wondered what you would do when the Nazis were invading. Yeah. It's what you're doing right now. Exactly. So are you fighting back or are you complicit and pretending it's not happening? And, you know, I think right now I feel like I'm so lucky because I happen to have a job where I know every single day I am doing everything I can to fight back for humanity, to do the right thing, to to bring, you know, an end to some suffering that's happening. But I think for everyone, you know, there are little things and big things we can all be doing. And, you know, everybody needs to recognize that really, truly horrific things happen to large groups of people because enough good people pretend it's not happening and don't intervene. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Lindsay Toloski. We'll also include all the organizations that she references in the show notes to make it easier for everyone to get engaged. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. This week's AMA answers a question about Avengers Endgame. If you haven't seen the movie yet, it's going to be a spoiler, so feel free to tune out right now. Okay, (laughs) here's the question. 
what was it like to lead all the women characters in the Avengers Endgame final battle scene? It was one of the most powerful moments of the film, and you were the leading woman in it, asks Andrea. Was I? Was I the leading woman in it? I don't even remember. Honestly, we were all down there. It was so fun to be with all of those incredible women. And, you know, I've been around in the Marvel world for the longest of all those ladies. So it was very sweet to be there and meet all of the new ones who are taking over all the various franchises. And, you know, it's all green screen when you're shooting it. So you can't really, you know, we had no idea what the battle scene looked like or or how it was going to work. But nevertheless, we still really, I believe, all felt the power of that incredible sisterhood of, of the Marvel, women of Marvel. It was very cool. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.